So it's John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Am I in the right place? Yeah. (laughs) Very good. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And skipping, to the, skipping towards the end of that same story, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told everything I've ever done. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Round of applause for Dan. Thank you so much, Dan. I, I, I am super excited. Over Christmas, I purchased a brand new microphone that just feels a little bit more flash than the one I've been using week by week at KXC. It costs a fair bit of money, but I think you'll agree it's worth it. So I'm just going to exchange the microphone. So here we go. We're going to begin a new teaching series. A new teaching series called Leave the 99. 
Um, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn to John chapter 4. How amazing is this microphone? I, I was anticipating a better response. In my mind, that was comedy gold. This is my daughter's Christmas present. I've been cracking up ever since. This has brought me so much joy. This is a season of joy. You can get these on Amazon. Bargain. Tough crowd. Tough crowd. Used to be an easier crowd at KXC. Um, we're, we're starting a teaching series, um, Leave for the 99. We're going to base this teaching series in two passages. Luke 15, the story of the lost sheep, and John chapter 4 that was just beautifully read. Um, here's the parable of Jesus in diagrammatic form. I know my diagrams just keep getting better and better and better. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, are there actually 99 sheep in that box? And the answer is yes. Did I count them? Yes. Are you paying good money for me to spend time creating diagrams with 99 sheep in boxes like that? Yes, you are. Thank you so much. I think you'll agree it's worth it. So there's 99 sheep and there's one lost sheep. And the, the story is Jesus communicating to the crowd the price priority of his father in heaven and the priority is always the one lost sheep. Now I want to compare that with the current landscape of Christianity in this nation. And this is according to recent research that of the English population, 4.7% regularly attend church would describe their faith as living and active. So you can see on the left, there's four sheep and then 0.7 of a sheep. Don't ask what happened to the sheep's head. I don't want to talk about it. It was messy. It's painful for the sheep as well as for me. Um, but 4.7% regularly attending church. Now, If you zoom in on then central London, our missional context, right? So that's a national statistic. We live in one of the most progressive secular cities on planet Earth. If you look at central London, Islington, Camden, zooming in on King's Cross, aware of the demographics of this part of London, the reality is this is closer um, to the uh, landscape of Christianity in King's Cross 1 in the fold, and 99, according to the the parable, of lost sheep. So if you put the two side by side, very, very different, right? An inversion of the parable that Jesus was talking about. So Jesus' teaching, um, the point of the story is is to offer a missional mindset to these disciples, these people that that Jesus is mentoring. He's saying, I I want you, like me, to go after the one lost sheep. He said, I haven't come for those that are healthy. I've come for those that are sick, that actually need a doctor, that need salvation. They need rescuing. I haven't come for the righteous and the religious. I've come for those that need salvation. Go after the one. I mean, this is reckless, extravagant teaching. Leave the 99 because the heartbeat of the Father is for the one that is lost. Now compare that with the Western church right now. We've developed an introspective spirituality. We've taken the words of Jesus. I would say literally we have left the 99. We've totally ignored the 99. We've built up our walls and we've developed discipleship programs that look after the one, that make sure the one are content and happy. We've developed pastoral programs that make sure the one are well looked after and they're doing okay. And Jesus says, no, 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 that wasn't the point of the parable. The point of the parable was to go after the lost. In the Western church right now, We've developed a vision of spiritual formation that the end goal of our discipleship, if you like, is wellness. 
Now you need to hear my heart on this. Hopefully if you've been part of this church for long enough, you'll know my heart. That I passionately believe in a spiritual formation that enables us to live life fully. Like that's why we did the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality teaching series. I want us to live well mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. I want us to pursue health. But the end goal of our discipleship is not wellness. If the end goal of the discipleship, if the end goal of spiritual formation had been wellness for Jesus, there would have been no cross, right? If the end goal for the Apostle Paul had been wellness, um, he wouldn't have ended up in prison. He wouldn't have been beaten on multiple occasions, flogged, stripped, humiliated, shipwrecked. He wouldn't have used language like he did to the church in Corinth saying, you know, I've beaten my body, I've I've made it my slave so I can press after the things that matter most, pursuing the lost. If the end goal had been wellness, 11 of the 12 initial apostles wouldn't have ended up martyred. Why did they give themselves so fully for the cause? It wasn't for wellness. It was for the lost. So Jesus says, like, I want you to go after the lost sheep, those that need a doctor, those that are hurting, those that are struggling, those that are longing for salvation. That's who we're going after. What would Jesus say to the church right now in our Western context? This is what I believe the Spirit is saying to us at KXC. I believe this is what the Spirit is saying to the church right now, particularly in the West. Um, Leave for the ninety-nine. It's a completely different landscape right now to 10, 20, 30 years ago. um, Completely different to the parable that Jesus used. Leave for the sake of the 99, right? Those that are lost, those that are hurting. We need to reject spiritual formation that has as its end goal wellness. And we need to pursue spiritual formation with the end goal of mission. Now, I believe if you pursue mission, like pursuing Christ-likeness so that we can participate in his purposes. If you pursue Christ-likeness, health is part of it, right? Health is part of it. Jesus said, you may have life and life in all of its fullness, but the end goal isn't wellness. The end goal is mission. We are going after a missional spirituality. So this is the drive, the vision, if you like, for KXC in 2020. We want to leave for the sake of the 99. And you'll see in that diagram there, all these arrows pointing off in every single direction. These arrows represent movement, like movement towards something. What is the movement towards? Well, for Jesus, it's towards the lost towards the hurting, towards the vulnerable, towards those on the margins, towards those most in need. But any movement towards something by very definition means there's a movement away from something. And the movement away is a movement away from home. Like this is the story of the incarnation, of God taking on human flesh, right? He isn't born into a palace. God takes on human flesh and he's born into poverty. He's born into a nation experiencing oppression at the hands of the Roman Empire. Within a few weeks of his life, Mary and Joseph are escaping to Egypt because Herod is trying to kill him. When they eventually return, he's raised in a carpenter's household that's near the bottom of the social ladder. In other words, the incarnation isn't about convenience. It isn't about God's comfort. It isn't conventional. Nothing about the incarnation is conventional. 
Like God leaves his throne and comes in pursuit of you and in pursuit of me and in pursuit of every single person that is lost. To follow the way of Jesus, to follow the spirit means we take on this missional mindset and embrace this missional journey. It means inconvenience. It means deep discomfort. It means embracing something that's unconventional. And this story in John 4, where we're going to spend a fair bit of time, it's an unbelievably awkward conversation. Like we miss it because of the the sort of like disconnect socially and culturally, but it's an incredibly awkward conversation. And we're going to spend a few weeks looking at it, learning from it. So let's look at some of the, the barriers that Jesus crosses just to reach this one lost sheep. Firstly, he breaks gender barriers. Now, we miss this, right? But let's rewind to the first century. Um, A rabbi, let alone just a guy, would never be found talking to a woman in broad daylight. That, That would have been scandalous. So she's surprised when Jesus begins the conversation. When the disciples return and see Jesus one on one in conversation with a woman, they are shaken by it too. It's like, oh my goodness, Jesus, what are you doing? You are risking your reputation. Like this is nuts. Are you aware of how this looks to the outsiders? And Jesus is saying, I don't care. She is lost and I'm going after the one lost sheep. But it gets more scandalous, right? So he's in conversation with a woman, but he breaks the racial and religious barriers of the day. Now, you need to understand the hatred that the Jews and the Samaritans had for one another. So if you look at this map, we're told that Jesus goes from Judea up towards Galilee. Now, the standard route, because the Jews avoided the Samaritans, you can hopefully see it on the right-hand side, it's a dotted line. They would cross the River Jordan. They would travel up north. They would then cross the Jordan again and then make their way to Galilee just to make sure they didn't pass through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans, right? Like deep. So why was the tension so intense? Let me give you a bit of the history of of the nation of Israel. And I know what some of you will be thinking. Snooze time. History. (laughs) Time to dial out. Stick with me. Hopefully this will be worth it. So after you had King David and King Solomon, eventually you get to the point where the kingdom of Israel is split into two. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The the northern kingdom, Samaria, the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, the northern kingdom is invaded by the Assyrians in 722 BC. They destroy the area and the northern kingdom is sent into exile. The southern kingdom, they're invaded by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And the Babylonians destroy the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple and they take the Jews off to Babylon. Now eventually the people of the northern kingdom return um, and as they return to their land they intermarry with the Canaanites, the people that have settled in the land and in fact they embrace some of the culture and some of the practices of worship of these Canaanites. In other words they dilute the worship of their own God. Now, when the people of the southern kingdom eventually return, they rebuild Jerusalem, the city. They rebuild the temple. But the Samaritans tried to get in the way. They didn't want the southern kingdom to resettle and build the temple so that they could worship their God. But they were unsuccessful. So do you know what they did? They built their own temple in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And they basically claimed, this is the place where God resides. This is the meeting point of heaven and earth. The southern kingdom didn't like that. So in the second century BC, they move north and they destroy the temple on Mount Gerizim, right? 
So by the time you get to the context of the first century in Palestine, this tension was like fully, fully loaded. They hated one another. And what happens in this story is Jesus breaks through all these barriers and enters into a conversation with a Samaritan. Like anyone reading this in the first century is like, oh my goodness, like Jews and Samaritans, they don't talk. Men and women don't talk in broad daylight. What is Jesus doing? Does he actually know what he's doing? Does he know what this looks like? And do you know what their conversation's about? The conversation's about which temple is the legit temple. Like where do heaven and earth collide? Where does God reside? In other words, like that's the one conversation. You don't go to that one. And do you know what Jesus says? He says, hey, Like, God doesn't reside in the temple on Mount Gerizim. (gasps) And then he says, but neither does he reside on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Like, there is a new meeting point of heaven and earth. A whole new temple is being built. Do you know where that temple is? Because living water is flowing from that temple. There's a meeting point of heaven and earth at that temple. Do you know where it is? And you can imagine they're like, yeah, where is it? Where is it? It's like, it's here. It's here right now. I am the Messiah. I am the temple. I am the meeting point of heaven and earth. Living water is flowing from me to you. Like this is extraordinary what's happening in the text. Extraordinary what's happening in this conversation. But it gets worse, right? He's talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan. But it's not any old Samaritan. It's a total outcast. A woman would never go and collect water on her own. She wouldn't be safe. They would go together in groups to collect water at the very beginning of the day before the sun fully rises or at the end of the day before it sets. They would go safety in numbers. They'd collect water and then head back to the village. This woman can't do that because everybody hates her and she's an outcast. So in the middle of the day, the, the hottest part of the day, she's on her own collecting water. Here's the other thing you need to know. Um, according to the Torah, the Jewish framework for life, um, you could remarry. On two grounds. One, if your husband had died or he had an affair and gave you a certificate of divorce, then you were free to remarry. But you could only remarry three times, according to the the Torah. Now, we know from this conversation that she's been married five times. She's hooked up with a guy that isn't even her husband. She's so far beyond living according to the Torah. She would have been considered ceremonially unclean. People would have said, look, she's dirty. Don't engage in conversation. Don't even go near if you go near her you'll be polluted by what she carries her sinfulness so everyone would have pushed her out of community um, onto the margins so can you see what Jesus is doing he's like just kicking down every barrier the gender barriers this is me kicking things down by the way he's kicking through the racial religious barriers and he's kicking through the kind of social barriers because he wants to get to the one lost sheep right now just just think about this In the framework for life, in in kind of Judaism in the first century, who would have been the person furthest from Jesus? The person people would expect that he would hate and just totally despise. Well, it would obviously be a woman. It would obviously be a Samaritan. It would obviously be an outcast, probably a serial adulterer. And what Jesus is basically saying is the person that's furthest from me in your mindset is the one I care about most. And I'm going to make a beeline for her. I'm going to find her. I'm going to offer her living water. I'm going to enable her to experience the goodness of God, the embrace of the Father, and it will transform her life. Isn't that incredible? 
Like if, if you get close to the heartbeat of God and the heartbeat of the Father, you will begin to care passionately about the lost. Like you'll make a beeline, you'll break the, the conventions of the day, you'll do whatever it takes to find lost sheep so they can taste the love and embrace of the Father. Anyone seen this film? Lines, put your hand in the air if you've seen this film. It's a cracker. I'm, I'm surprised and disappointed in you, if I'm honest. It's probably one of the best films I've ever seen. Um, true story of an Indian kid, Saru, five years old. Um, and he and his brother went to a nearby village to grab some food. His older brother said, look, why don't you just wait here, find somewhere warm and wait for me. He found a stationary train. Um, he fell asleep. What he didn't realize, once he was asleep, the train started moving. Um, he woke up many hours later. He traveled a thousand miles and ended up in Calcutta, a five-year-old. He didn't even know the name of the village he grew up in. Um, so as a five-year-old in Calcutta, totally panicked, traumatized, desperate for his mum, um, doesn't know what to do, so tries to fend for himself, spends the first few weeks trying to just find enough food to survive on the streets of Calcutta. He eventually finds an orphanage. Um, an Australian family uh, meet him at the orphanage. He's adopted into their family and he is relocated to Australia. Now, fast forward the clock, 25 years, he still has memories. They are fading memories of his mother's face, of his brothers and sisters. He still has fading memories of the streets that he used to play on. All he knows is it was a thousand miles from Calcutta. Um, in 2008, he heard about Google Earth. And he thought, I wonder if I just search enough, I might find like images on Google Earth that match these fading memories. Maybe I can find out where I'm from. So for the next three years, he spends nine hours every single day on Google Earth, you know, mapped out a thousand mile radius and just going through every single village, every single train station. So if you do nine hours every day for three years, that's essentially 10,000 hours of investment trying to find an image that matches a fading memory. And after three years, he sees this train station and it triggers something within. There's a water tower in the background. He's got a memory of a water tower. And on Google Earth, he starts kind of following the track down some dusty paths. He's like, this, this feels like it matches what, what my memories are saying. And, and he ends up in the village. And he's like, I think that's the village where I grew up. So he flies to Calcutta. He gets on a train. He travels a thousand miles, ends up at this train station with the water tower. He follows the track to his village. And if you've seen the story, it kind of does spoil the ending. Um, He's reconciled to his mum. Reconciled to his mum. It's still worth watching. Um, Plenty other twists and turns in the story. This true story, right? Ends up embracing his his mum. And I watched it. Honestly, I started weeping. Weeping. It's like, that's the heartbeat of the father. This guy spent 25 years, couldn't shake the image of his mother's face, his brother's face. I can't quit. I've got to hunt them down. One day I want to embrace them once more. Spend 10,000 hours on Google Earth. I want to track them down. I want to track them down. Why? Because when you lose something so precious, you will do whatever it takes to find that thing right. Can you see this is the heartbeat of the father? This is what 
the story of the lost sheep is about. God has lost something phenomenally precious to him, phenomenally precious, and he will not quit. This is what the life of Jesus is about. He takes on human flesh and he lives and he dies a brutal death and he rises to new life. He's breaking down barriers. I've got to get to the lost sons and daughters. I want them to experience the embrace of the father. That is what's going on in this story. The woman at the well and notice an encounter with one reaches a whole city, the town of Sica. Just an encounter with one. This teaching series, Leave for the 99, we're going to spend most of the time looking at this conversation between Jesus and this woman. Um, here's some of the ground we're going to cover. We're going to look at the power of story, that Jesus engages with her story and offers her a better story. We're going to look at the power of signs and wonders. Jesus, through a prophetic word, like opens a door for kingdom activity to rush in. We're going to look at the power of words. Jesus speaks truth to her innermost being. Words matter. Paul says that faith comes through hearing. In other words, the church needs to proclaim the gospel, proclaim our faith. And then we're going to look at the power of invitation. Um, We are leaving home as a church. We want to go after lost sheep. We're leaving home in order to lead people home. Um, And today I want to land with a few reflections on what leaving home might look like for us. Like we know the motivation. Right? We want to see the kingdom of God break out. How do we leave home? Here's a few thoughts. Number one, um, we leave home when we recognize that we're moved by joy. This isn't about duty, by the way. This is about joy. Like f- for Saru, five-year-old kid, and then retracing his steps like 25 plus years later, it's the joy set before him of potentially embracing his mother. That motivates everything. Do you know what it says of Jesus in the New Testament? For the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you know what the joy that was in his mind? It was an embrace with you. He did it for you. And he did it for every single lost son and daughter. He was picturing an embrace and was like, for that, for that joy, anything. The cross, okay, anything for that. Because that gift, they're so precious to my father. We are moved by joy. We keep the end in sight. Secondly, we're moved by love. I found this fascinating when I was reading some of the commentaries on this text. You might find it less fascinating, but let's go there anyway. Um, So in John chapter 3, John the Baptist basically says, hey, don't get super excited by me. This is a paraphrase, obviously. Um, Don't get super excited by me. Like, I'm just the the forerunner. I'm just the warm-up act, right? The one coming after me, that's the bridegroom. I'm just like an usher, like a best man at a wedding. My role is to tell the bride, like, get ready. The bridegroom is coming. So if you read chapter 3, all this language of the bridegroom coming, there's going to be a wedding. There'd have been excitement. There's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a party. And then you turn the page in John chapter 4, something happens at a well. Now remember, like the the Jewish community, they loved the patriarchs, like the the mothers and fathers of, of the faith. Now most of the fathers, the patriarchs, they met their lovers at a well. Like, so where did Isaac meet Rebecca? The answer is at a... It's always going to be a well. So this is going to help with audience participation. And Jacob met Rachel at a... Oh, you're getting cocky now. And Moses met his wife at a... Amazing. So when they turn the page, they've heard this language of a wedding. There's a, there's a scene at a well. There's going to be a wedding. And in a very real sense, there is a wedding. And it isn't Jesus and the woman at the well. It's God and his 
people. The covenant is being restored. They're experiencing union with the God who made them, loved them, and wants to redeem them. And there's a party. That's how the story ends. This is incredible, right? Do you know what this woman was really searching for? She was searching for love. That's why she had five failed marriages, was currently with with another guy. And Jesus steps in and says, I know what you're after. You're looking for love, right? But, But I'm here to tell you that All of that really points to me. I am the fulfillment of every single one of your longings. You need to know this, KXE, that every romantic drive that you experience, every longing for sexual fulfillment, it points towards the person of Jesus. Right? You know there'll be no marriage in heaven. You know that, right? You know there'll be no sex in heaven. Some of you, I'm not going, I'm not going. That's sealed the deal, sealed the deal. Offer a different religion for me. No marriage in heaven, no sex in heaven. Will it be worth it? Absolutely. Honestly, when we experience union with Christ in heaven, we'll look back at our dating exploits. We'll look at marriage and we'll look at the best sexual experiences that we had in this life and we'll say, nothing, nothing compared to the joy and the intimacy and the overwhelming sense of love. All of those longings, right? They point to the person of Jesus. And in this conversation with this woman looking for love, like marrying people left, right and centre, he basically says, all of those longings point to me and I'm here right now. That's incredible. Like what if we reframed evangelism from selling ideas to people like selling a set of propositional truths, hoping that if we provide some rational foundations, they'll be like, yep, sign me up. What if we saw evangelism as introducing people to a lover? More than that, the love they've craved their whole life. The love that all these longings and sexual desires, all of it points to Jesus and we can introduce them to the one who satisfies every longing. That's evangelism, right? Like, don't you want to be involved in that? introducing people to a lover. So we're moved by joy, we're moved by love. Thirdly, we're moved by the Spirit. You know, verse four in the passage, it says Jesus had to go to Samaria. No, he didn't. He didn't have to go to Samaria. In fact, most of the Jews didn't go through Samaria. They crossed the Jordan, went north, crossed the Jordan again, and then made their way to to Galilee. Why does it say Jesus had to? And the answer is compelled by the Spirit. Nearly all of the commentators agree. Like this is Jesus saying the spirit like drove me there. Do you, do you know if you're walking in step with the spirit, he'll always lead you to the lost. He'll always lead you to people that need a doctor, that are searching for love and searching for redemption. He's moved by the spirit towards this woman, towards Samaria, and he goes in total dependence. This is one of the beautiful things about this encounter um, is that Jesus humbles himself And he elevates the woman. He gives her dignity. This is an incredible kind of posture to learn from. Jesus humbles himself. There isn't a power control thing going on in this encounter. In other words, Jesus is the one in need. 
He doesn't say, hey, do this, do that. He basically says, look, I need you. I'm thirsty. I've got nothing to drink from. Could you get me some water? So he humbles himself. He dignifies this total outcast that probably hasn't spoken to you know, a man, let alone a rabbi in her life. He dignifies her. And as they're talking eye to eye, they have this conversation that ends with this embrace. Like we need to learn from that, right? The church's posture often in mission is we're going to keep hold of the power. We're going to look down with this kind of patronizing mindset and we're going to try and lift people up to our level. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how mission works. We humble ourselves, we dignify others, we elevate them so that we can enable them to experience and embrace. How amazing is that? There is dependence on the spirit in this passage and there is dependence on the woman. That's dignifying for the woman. Um, Fourthly then, Jesus is moved for the one. He is moved for the one. An incredible thing happens. He reaches the city by going after the one. Um, Theologians call this the scandal of the particular. That when God wants to accomplish something, he just chooses one. Right? So he wants to establish a nation. What's his first move? Just chooses one. Abraham. A foolish choice. Over the age of, of, of having kids. But God loves to choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the weak things to shame the strong. So who, who's you know, over the hill? Abraham. Brilliant. Come on. You can have some fun. Um, so God, Abraham, that led to a nation. Then he wants to reach the nation. So what does he do? He chooses one weak nation. Israel. The word literally means to struggle. So to reach the nations, he chooses one. To redeem all of humanity, all of creation, he chooses one. His son, Jesus Christ. To reach the village of Sica, he chooses one woman. Jesus always goes after the one. How is he going to reach your workplace? How is he going to reach your family? How is he going to reach your street? You know, you know what? It only takes one. That one could be you. That one could be you. You know, St. Augustine, he said this, which is, is beautiful. He said, without God, we can't. We, we can't bring transformation to society. We can't establish the kingdom in our own strength. Without God, we can't. And then he said this, without us, he won't. How is God going to reach your community, your workplace? He's positioned you perfectly to reach the people. He always chooses the one to reach the many. I heard a missionary talk this last week, this guy who was sent to India um, to establish an organization to reach people with the gospel. And he did the sums um, as he was leaving. He's like, okay, population of India, 1.3 billion. And he's like, as an organization, like, how many do you think we could reach in a, a year? You know, he asked that to his team and they basically came back and were like, I reckon, you know, if on a good year, and if we're strategic, vest properly, maybe 100,000 people we could reach with the gospel in a year. Like, that's good. 100,000, great. How long would it take us? Here's the answer. 13,000 years. <laughs> that's a problem. That's going to take a while. And it's like, well, what if we think differently? What if rather than going after 100,000, what if we go after one? Just one person. And we spend six months discipling the one, teaching them to follow the way of Jesus, to live empowered by the, the scripture, you know, you know, and empowered by the spirit, all, all of that. What if we just spent six months investing in one? And then we say to that one, in the next six months, you need to invest in one. And you keep you know, repeating the cycle. So one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 
Oh, that, that's poor maths. Poor maths. I was expecting a bit more confidence. 16. Do you know how long it would take to reach a, a billion people by doing it like that? 10 years. 10 years. That, that's the power of exponential growth, right? That's phenomenal by just reaching the one. What if we took on that mindset? Every six months, we're going to invest in one. We'll keep the cycle going. We'll keep the cycle going. Jesus goes after the one. Final thing then, moved to lead home the many. Moved to lead home the many. He goes after the one, but through the one, he reaches the whole city of Sica. That's revival, by the way. If you read stories of revival, when a city turns to Christ, that's called revival. Like that's pretty, pretty significant. A revival breaks out because of a conversation with one. This is how God works. He reaches the many through the one. So I want to land with this. This is what we're going after um, in 2020 as a church. We're going to leave home for the 99. We're going to leave for the 99, right? 1% in church. We have to turn our hearts outwards. We can't just constantly have discipleship program, pastoral programs, just making sure we're all okay, right? And 99% haven't experienced the goodness of God, the embrace of the Father. They haven't tasted redemption that's available in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is saying by his spirit, leave for the sake of the 99. And what's your first move? You start with one. 